Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3 Dinhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 12 Dinhianicus, a Magical Mystery Tour. We ought to bring this series to an end, or at least even if it's an artificial end. Yeah. Um, but before we do stop talking about Dinhianicus, I suppose we better mop up a few loose ends. Mop up loose ends? Well, alright, tie up loose ends. Well, you could mop them up if, if they were spaghetti, maybe. But uh, we have said right from the start, and even I think before we started this long series, that Dinhianicus are this amazing source uh, for stories and for all kinds of other contextual information as well. Those really, they're, they're very good story archaeological trenches, mm -hmm. stuff with um, linguistic and contextual artefacts. Exactly. I think that may even be a quote from Dinhianicus and Dreamtime. It I might. remember saying something like that. <laughs> it might well. But go on, uh, just remind us, since we're here now, um, Dinhianicus. Give us the just a general summary of what they are. Well, the direct translation, if you like, of the term Dinhianicus is the history of prominent places. It doesn't just mean the tops of hills. Well, it, it sort of <laughs> does, but then it doesn't as well. You know, it does partly a din is a, you know, prominent place on top of a hill. Um, but it's also somewhere that's important. <laughs> um, and these histories, I, I reckon at some point in our past there's been one of these stories at least one of these stories for every townland in mm. the country every field and rock you know how it got its name exactly exactly they're all really how it became stories or how it began stories yes so all these stories they mm. come from all around the whole country yeah so when were they first written down and how did they get collected together well although we know of the term Dinhianicus from really quite a long way back it's definitely recognized in our early sources as if you like a body of knowledge um but the, our main source today if you like is well for a start the metrical dinhenicus which you've heard us talk about an awful lot over and over again yeah and although it, it, it's a little bit i suppose disingenuous to talk about it as a body of work because really it's a collection of poems from about every manuscript you could think of there's some in the Book of Leinster, there's some in the Book of Ballymote, in the Yellow Book of Lecan, in Leverna Hydra, like absolutely. So they just appear in almost every? Yeah, in, in loads of these manuscript collections. And what's their, I mean, how do you know what date they were written down at? Well, that's a linguistic question. And um, in as they're collected in the metrical Dinhianicus mm -hmm. collection, they do range right through the old Irish and into the middle Irish period when you analyse the language and of course being poetry it's particularly easy yeah. to be certain that the language comes from a specific time because the structure will maintain it. Now while we've been putting this particular episode together we've been mm -hmm. talking a lot about Gwyn yes. who actually translated them. Just, yes. It's an interesting story isn't it? Yes well this collection the Metrical Dionicus I mean it, it's really it represents a life work for E.A. Gwynne and uh, he published it in five volumes in I think in 1909 um, and so there's five volumes four of those are poetry the fifth is sort of notes and uh, addenda and corrigenda and all the rest of it 
Um, and he has kind of roughly ordered them by area, by geographical location. Yeah, I noticed that because the, you you picked you picked the Dinhanicus for today. Mm. I said you pick some of your favourites. Yeah. And I noticed that they'd all come from one area of the country. Yeah, they're all kind of Leinster based, the ones we're looking at today. And that's partly because they... because you went to one volume of <laughs> <laughs> Well, I sort of I got as far as volume three and I went, I like that one and I oh that's a good one. And, oh I like that one too. So yeah, they're they're generally what uh, I you realize. might that they were roughly geographically arranged. Yeah, I wasn't certain either until I started to look at it like that. So yeah, I think they are sort of grouped together. Volume four would be more the Coniston. You'll find as we're talking, we make we make a lot of jokes about Gwyn's translations at yes. times because because it was nineteen oh nine, about the turn of the century yes. when he translated them. They're full of fake medievalisms yeah. and vows and thus and withers and, 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 and olds and yeah. and I think it's you know because. It, that was a period when there was the great narrative poem in, mm. in um, English literature. Yeah. And in fact, it was just the way to make it sound archaic and yeah. exotic and interesting. Exactly. And now it just sounds extremely muddling and sometimes very funny. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's the literary equivalent of the Victorians building Gothic ruins on their lands. You're know, building them as ruins because yeah. that was the aesthetic. Well, you it's, know. it's Celtic twilight it and is. it's full of it. But we mustn't, even though we giggle sometimes at the translations, yeah. I must admit, it's an incredible feat. Well, d just the sheer volume of uh, work yeah. that he has both edited and translated and gone to so many manuscript sources and brought yeah. it all together as a body of work. And, and I know we sometimes joke, but it wasn't for people like Gwyn mm. or even Whitley Stokes, Stokes, who yeah. we complain at for his bandlerization yeah. of Moitura. Uh, yeah. But if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. Exactly, yeah. So having honoured him at the beginning, we yeah. can now giggle at some of the translations. Let's do that. <laughs> Now, one of the features that I really like about these poems and the, the stories, I think there's prose Dinhianicus as well from various sources, um, but I like that they will give often more than one explanation for a place name and there's no sense of contradiction. They say, if you don't like, if you know, listen to this story. Yeah. Oh, well, if you didn't like that one, here's another one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's got a real kind of authenticity about it, I think. It's interesting, though. Remember when we began this series, close mm. to the beginning of this series, we were talking about Dintianicus and Dreamtime mm. and we compared some of these Dintianicus poems to Australian Aboriginal indigenous yeah. stories. Yeah. Again, there's the same thing. There's mm. that you can have more than one explanation. Yeah. And it's not a problem. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I suppose if I sum this up, as we reach the end of this series, I love the way our explanations of Dintianicus, they've really taken us on winding paths right round the country. Yeah. North, south, east, yeah. west, and sort of a labyrinthine exploration of some of the most exciting and some of the best of the great Irish sagas. Oh yeah, well I mean we've covered uh, most recently of course the story of Aideen and Mither. One long story. Yeah, gone into the story of Brickley's Feast. A huge text. Yes. <laughs> you know, they've really been and some of the And then there's been the Adventures of Nero, exactly. which is always one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course Clothru. Yes. Another really interesting Exactly, tale. yeah. And as we've also found on those journeys, very often these stories cluster around those really important prominent places yeah. like Evanmacha, which is traditionally the seat of Ulster sovereignty, yeah. as Cruachan is for Connacht. Real political powerhouses. Yeah, absolutely. And even down to Carcanry and Kerry or Dunrothriga up in County Down. There the stories are giving a kind of legitimacy to, if you like, the political dynasties that would have still held power from those sites yeah, at the times yeah. of telling these stories. Um, but they're also important and central to the myths. 
And they're importantly, I think, a meeting place between those two oh, worlds. Yeah, this has struck me. I hadn't mm. realised, I think, how central yeah. this was to every story we've come across. Mm. It's really taken us deep into this, the two worlds. Yeah. And it becomes so clear that there are two equal worlds that yes. exist and sometimes they're at peace and sometimes they're at war, yeah. but each is as real as the other. Exactly. It's not this world of the uh, ephemeral yeah. and the temporal. Yeah. It, they're both real. Exactly, yeah. Um, I suppose so what we're looking at, if I could sum up Tintianicus, I'd mm. say it was the history and geography of two worlds. Yeah, very succinct. <laughs> <laughs> so for this episode and to kind of cap off this series, we're going to take another look at a selection of Dinyanika's poems. I've picked a few that I think are quite interesting, but also they show some of the different functions that you get from a Dinyanika's yep, tale. So this is really his oldest choice. <laughs> so if you don't like them, there's always another yeah. one. <laughs> but you know, it won't be the last time we encounter them, of oh, course. No. That's impossible. Yes. They're a significant part of just about every story yeah. we encounter. Exactly. But let's hear your first choice. Yep. So the first Dinyanika's poem that I've chosen in this not very desert island, she not exactly discs, I know, well you never know, go on, sorry I'm interrupting you, that's alright, the first one that I've chosen is um, on, it's the second poem on Brew Nabonia, which is the Boyne Valley complex of Neolithic monuments in County Meath. You've chosen one of the most famous sites in the country exactly. to start with. Yes. Good. So what made you select that one? Well, it's... Among all the others. Exactly. There is a lot to choose from. Um, it's almost the archetypal Dinhenicus, the sort of lore of prominent places. It's pointing out the features in the landscape and giving us their names and their stories. It almost reads like a travel guide. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, do you see how many stanzas begin with Know ye or Behold? It feels like a sort of rather um, pretentious tour guide reading a group <laughs> round the Boyne Valley and telling tales on the way. Exactly. Well, that, that I think is quite deliberate. Uh, there's also a lot of references or connections to some of the sagas with which we're familiar. Um, and th there's also this uh, what I feel is an assumption that the audience or the reader will know what all those stories are. So all the poet has to do is just refer, just point. Yeah. And it does work like a travel guide. Yeah. Actually, that's why when I looked at this poem, I've sort of modernised Gwyn's translation mm. to bring out that uh, tour guide quality. Yes. <laughs> so we might as well go through the Dinyanicus poem you've chosen then. Indeed, yeah. Can I be totally? Oh, go on then. <clears throat> this way, please. Keep together. Follow the umbrella. <laughs> Oh, uh, nobles of break, with your honest strength, your deeds worth the telling. Uh, do you know the tale of every lord here in the Brug of the Mackinogue? Oh, here before you is the famous fairy mound. You can clearly see it's a king's dwelling. Uh, it was built by the diligent Dagda. It was a shelter and a safe, strong keep. <laughs> so that's the first site we visit. Yes, yeah, which is the, the tumulus itself of Newgrange, the wonderful, wonderful Neolithic so-called tomb. Mind you, I was just thinking about the tour guide and actually visiting Newgrange. Yeah. It must be, it's an incredible visit nowadays, especially, um, you know, since the restoration, which yes. is now about 40 years, yes. isn't it? Now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember seeing pictures of it as a child, but mm. when I first, by the time I got to Ireland in the late 80s, early 90s, it mm. had been restored. Yes. Um, mind you, it's, I remember the first time I saw it, it was practically shocking. Yeah, yeah. With the restoration. Yes, and particularly the, what had been done on the outside, where all that white quartz had been put up sort of around the entrance almost. 
Uh, it was very bright. I meant shocking in the sense of, um, uh, you know, just such a sudden... What? Yeah. It looks so modern. Yes, exactly. So minimalist. Yeah, yeah. Though I'm never exactly sure how I feel about mm. uh, restoration or... Yeah. Actually, I like it. it I know. It's always a very difficult question for any kind of preservation of archaeology, you know, because, again, for, for countless generations, it was just a grassy mound. You know. And that comes up in the next verse. Anyway, we better go on with the tour. Let's go. Um, come on, come closer. Do you see the bed of the ruddy-faced dagger? Oh, a soft slope it is, lucking rough edges. Oh, after the chase, he courteously courted a fair and ever youthful woman. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we, the ever youthful woman. We know who she is. This is, of course, the story of the dagger and Bowen, or Eslu, as we have come across more than once before. We had series one, episode three. three. And then we had in this series, the first of the 18 episodes also covered this story. It just struck me while we were talking mm. that I was going on about what you, you know, the feeling about looking at the reconstructed mound. Yeah. But of course, the mound described in that is the unreconstructed mound. Exactly. Um, the, the soft slope lacking mm. in rough e edges. Yeah. Because when these stories were made, it was very, very old. Exactly. And it had already fallen into a, a sort of green cupboard hill yeah yeah but there still is obviously that sense that it once was some great building you know which thanks to modern archaeology we can now say you know, for certain it is yes yeah. um and of course this is straight away referencing the story that gives the site its name it is the brook the bowen it is bowen's so brook. it's didn't Yannickus right from the beginning? Absolutely. Come on, on with the tour. Yes. <clears throat> Follow me, please. Uh, let us view the two paps of the king's consort, here beyond the mound, oh, west of the fairy mansion, the spot where Kermit the Fair was born. Oh, it lies directly on your path. Oh, my dear, strap away. Here came the wife of noble Nevard's son to an assignation with the Dagda. Oh, her dog followed after her, even if the journey was a bit long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, when we looked at uh, the Dinhinicus on the Bowen River, in fact, that's where we met sort of Bowen and her journey to the well. And that's where she was killed with her little dog, too, with Davila, who came and followed after her and who has places named after it. Now, you gave me an interesting piece of information about Kermit the yes. Bowen, not Kermit the Frog. No, definitely not Kermit the Frog. It isn't spelt like that, anyway. No. It, this is one of the Dagda's three sons, Oith, Kermit, and uh, Oingus. Mm -hmm. And it seems that Kermit is the root for my surname, Kermit. So Kermit and Carmody are connected? I think so. I yeah. think so. I must admit, when you're reading that, it's very hard not to say Kermit I the know. Frog instead of Kermit the Fair. I know. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, let's go on then. Yeah. Okay. Here is an interesting story. Here also came Mither from Breedeth to carry away a baby prince. Oh, it was a happy outcome, for he bore the Mackin Oak from the ford, shielded, protected, although he was weary. <laughs> oh, it turned out to be a wise decision, for the boy, nine full years after at his demand, was brought to his father, to the well-loved Dagda, at this house. Now, this is a familiar tale. It is rather, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, and this is the, the, the next bit of that story. One Zoingus has been born with all that sort of day and night trickery. Um, he's fostered off to Mither and uh, grown in secret, as we So again, discussed. it was telling a well-known story, exactly. and it goes on too. Mm -hmm. Oh, the king provided entertainment for him in the mound that, if you know your story lore, gained its name through very effective trickery. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's plenty of information available if you go and look for it. Everybody knows about Dovertresk. Yeah, <laughs> except, except we don't. <laughs> 
I'm afraid there are many sections of this poem and we're going to maybe skip over a couple of them where it does say this everybody knows this story of such and such and going kind of going um not exactly all I can say about Dove Thresk is that it means a mound of rubbish or refuse. <laughs> it's funny isn't it yeah. everybody knows where the midden is yeah <laughs> It's like that. Here now, this are the how, toilets. That's right. Here's the mound. And this is how it got its name. Oh, you want the toilets? Yeah. Over there. You know, you tell you it works like some sort of uh, tour guide. It really does. And I haven't changed it that much. No, no. <laughs> In fact, I've kept it. I've just modernised the language yeah. and it just works. Yes. Let's go on with the tour. Yeah. Oh, you remember how the Dagda sternly refused the request of the holding's owner to remain? Still, it didn't go badly. After some hostile posturing and a good deal of drinking, he went off grumbling to live in Ockham. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, how they got the brew for Oingus and, and tricked Elkver out of it. And, uh, yeah. Elkver is sent off to a place that's not that far away. Ochen is, seems to be between kind of Navan and Kells in County Meath. So it's not a million miles away, but it is a different territory. So it looks like, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to shorten the tour at this point. No oh, time yes. today, but you can read the guidebook. Exactly. Yeah, we will have the, the full text, if you like, up on, on the blog. our blog. So you can have a look at those sites that we haven't found, but maybe you will. So let's go on with our shortened tour. Mm -hmm. Oh, and do you recognise the grave of the king's horse? Kinaid was a most willing and great-hearted beast who gained victory from the fleetest of the bridled ones. Uh, yes, he raced at the will of noble Igalok's son. Uh, this is really interesting that there should be a place that is, you know, supposed to be the grave of a horse. This has got to be one great beast, you know. We're a bit like Snowmane, Theoden's horse in yeah, Lord of the Rings. Exactly, yeah. that a horse that's famous yeah, in its own right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, not that we know where it is now. And these stories are forgotten. Mm. Yeah, unless they're out there and we haven't found them. Mm -hmm. Okay, on with the tour. Let's move on, ladies, gentlemen. We now encounter a mystery. The comb, the casket of the woman, wherever each treasure is hidden, it shall remain until the day of doom, undamaged and undimmed. Mm. Now, of course, we know who the woman is. Well, if it's not Irene Adler, <laughs> then it must be the Morrigan. <laughs> I think we've been watching a little too much Sherlock. But yes, <laughs> given that the Morrigan is given as the Dagda's woman so often, it's not surprising that we should have a reference to her here because it's it's the site is so intimately associated with the Dagda. Uh, well, we've also got hidden treasure, and this oh, time, yeah. you notice, it doesn't belong to Mananan. I know, that's unusual. <laughs> I wonder how she kept that from us. Is there any significance to the comb, do you think? It's one of those things that crops up a bit in some sort of Western European folklore, and sometimes to do with mermaids, particularly women who are either like brushing their hair, or sometimes, as with the Morrigan at the Ford of Unshin, when she mm. meets the Dagda, she's loosened her hair to wash it. I think it's a lot to do with women's hair and their power. There is, of course, the Welsh story of Isfahan, mm. where yes. the whole quest is about to find the comb and scissors yes. to comb his hair. Yeah. And as I think I mentioned once before, there are several stories about a girl having to find a comb to comb the hair of giants' yes. heads that come out of the well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really can't offhand remember. Yeah. But I don't know. There, mm. there's, there's no obvious significance. No, it's just a general one. Yeah, exactly. Something there. Not sure what. Well, let's go on with the tour again. Yes. Uh, keep together, please, if you finish taking your photos. Uh, now, tales of this place should be well known to you all. On this plain, where shields were wielded, scores of chiefs have seen their deeds sung. Oh, here too was the famous prison of the Grey Steed. Yes, and we've met this grey steed before. This is the Liamacha. So I don't know what it did to end up in prison, but 
obviously it's another lost story yeah and i think there must have been more about the gray oh yeah it's, you know it's so prominent as a character once again you know he ends up as being famously uh Cahoon's horse mm, mm. but i think he may have had his own tales yeah yeah absolutely what well, this is one of them mm. would have been really interesting yeah 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 so oh now we've got another story yeah and let's back to the tour mm -hmm. let's move on uh, you will recognise by the debris of skulls the glen where the sluggish Mather dwelt. It was slain after the skilled host battled it with oh, causing much havoc. Afterwards came what well, everyone knows this story, of course. <laughs> the kings from the fertile land around to view the vast Mather, each marking the killing ground with a stone. A, a solid cairn was built up by the host as a rampart over the bones of the beast, and that was the memorial to the sad event that they met with might and eventual victory. Yeah, now this is a wonderful, curious little bit of story. Um, is it Dinhianicus inside of Dinhianicus? Exactly, isn't it? yes, yes. And in fact, this great beast, the Martha, we're going to meet it later on in another one of our Dinhianicus poems that we've chosen. So maybe not to say too much about it but it does describe how the whole valley came to be it does it? yeah this is a big landscape story that's just been sort of added in here amongst all this other stuff so maybe we should just take an admiring look at the valley for now yeah and continue the tour let's go there is the castle of oingus de blameless uh it was also known under the name of Aratha Oinlusa, and it was said that there the son of Crunvoil suffered pangs of guilt after he drunk himself to madness on strong mead. Of course. <laughs> I love that, this sort yeah. of aside. Oh, you know, this, this guy used to live there. He was terrible. Yeah. He just did <laughs> a proper old so. Now, uh, this one I particularly like because it reminds me of my days in Trinity College. And Trinity College in Dublin, of course, you know, it's one of those tourist destinations. You and must have got fed up of looking out your window. Oh, yeah, tour guides, guides going, going up the time. And all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, know, I remember. But there was one in particular that used to amuse me because they would point to a part of Front Square where all the cobbles were and say, and this is the place where Samuel Taylor Coleridge puked. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sitting not far from there as the tour went past, rather hungover and not in a lecture, and wondering, <laughs> I wonder if in days to come they're going to point out that this is the place all the comedy threw up. <laughs> exactly. Probably not. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it, what's interesting yeah. is that sometimes the strangest and yeah. somewhat inconsequential stories just get me remembered. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's one of these. There's yeah. no story associated. It's just yeah. that this guy, this chieftain, <laughs> got himself blind drunk yeah. and yeah. regretted it in the morning. Exactly. We've got one more bit of the tour. Yeah. So before we finish the tour, ladies and gentlemen, Remember the riot royal contest at the road of the Mackinogue? Why is it there? Well, well, that's where the mighty Mither was injured. Now, can any of you tell me the full story? And that's how it ends. Yeah. <laughs> I love that it's last lovely. line, yeah. ending on a question. Yeah. Now, one of you here should know what you tell me. Exactly. Come on, I'm your turn. Tell you. yeah. Your turn to tell me now. <laughs> and this, of course, is Mither losing his eye when he's visiting his foster son, Oingus. And what's nice is that in this poem, it's called Road Macandog, the road of the Macandog. Mm. But in Hogan's Onomastican, it's listed as Road Sula Mither. So it's the road of Mither's eye. Mm. So, so this was actually, by that time, the story had given this uh, name yeah, exactly. to the area. Yeah. 
Um, yep, and that's the end of that Dinyanaka's poem. So, mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our tour. Thank you for joining Dinyanaka's tours today. <laughs> so, for my next selection on our magical mystery tour, okay, I have chosen a pair of poems that both refer to more or less the same place. It's what we would now think of as the same place, and that is our modern capital city of Dublin. Mm. Now, most Irish people would be familiar with the fact that uh, while we call it Dublin when we're speaking English, when we're speaking Irish, we call it Ballyohaclea. Um, and but this first poem that we're going to look at is gives us the name of Dublin, Dublin in Irish. This is another um, verse than Janicus, mm -hmm. but I mean we've had enough poetry for the time being, <laughs> so I, I've put this one into a piece of prose. Great, just to change, ring the changes. Mm -hmm. Rudolf, the magnificent and famous son of Glasgower, his grandson of Glasgowan, had a daughter. Now, she was pretty magnificent as well. She was a wizard. She was a noble poetess of star-like beauty, curly-haired and brave. She was a seer fit to eulogise any chieftain. Now, this accomplished young woman was married to Aina, who lived in the meadows of Ada, now known as Hoth in North County, Dublin. There was a problem, however. Aina had another and very beautiful wife who was called Ada, daughter of Ockin. Yep. Dufflin was jealous of Ada and finally could stand it no longer. However, she turned her magical curses towards Ada's grandfather. Well, uh, it might be grandmother, I the, think. The wiry and possibly wily warrior Knuckfa. It still could be her grandmother. <laughs> yeah, of course it could. Dublin sang a spell of the sea in the morning, but Knuckva was not beguiled. By Jochen's personal command, Margin the Gilly was sent to destroy Dublin. His attack, however, was quite surprising. <laughs> As she was passing, he hid, and then he threw a berry at her, which killed her stone dead. <laughs> Margin the assassin did not last long. He did not live her for long, because Rodolf had him killed before the sun had set. And thus ended the sad life of Dovlin, who died of natural causes. Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be laughing. Oh, oh woman. I, I, know. Know. <laughs> uh, I suppose so. I suppose it's kind of a, a similar tale to Fumnok. Do you remember? What... Yes, exactly. The, the story of um, a man who takes a second wife and then there's strife between them. Um, I think Dovlin ends up a bit worse off though than Foom looked at it. Why do you think she attacks Ada's grandfather or grandmother Grandmother. rather than her? Rather than Ada that is. Yeah well when we had Foom and Aideen, Aideen was the second wife and we discovered that it was legal for a chief wife um, to injure non-fatally uh, a subsequent wife within the first three days. She hasn't got this choice has she because she's the younger woman. Exactly. What are her choices? If she well, can't attack her what can she do? Legally um, a subsequent wife can only pull her hair, well pull <laughs> the, the chief wife's hair, scratch her or basically call her names. That's not much help is No it? it's not. <laughs> and I suppose when she attacks the grandfather or grandmother, yeah. I suppose She's kind of attacking the whole family. Isn't exactly. She? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely uh, an attempt to undermine Ada's entire family and therefore her inheritance and her status and everything else goes along with that. So it's definitely not legally um, permissible. No, this is this is not within the law. Definitely not. But killed by a berry. I know. <laughs> I love this. I mean, killed by a berry. He sort of, you know, he doesn't uh, doesn't sense stab her or do anything else. He just. I wonder whether it's a sling with a berry 
of I some sort. I think it? it might be. I mean, after all, it's no more bizarre and unexpected than meth of being killed by a piece of cheese. Yeah. You know, in some ways, a berry might be more effective. Well, I was trying to identify what sort of berry you could use. Yeah. If they had, if there were cherries, mm. you could imagine a cherry stone in a sling could yes. be quite efficient. But I mean, I won't swear to this, but I'm pretty sure that there weren't, well, when this story was written down, mm. there might have been cherries. Mm. But not large ones, I wouldn't have said. Bird cherries, maybe. Mm. Uh, if you're going to take this story back into antiquity, yeah. um, it wouldn't have been till around. Uh, Oh, I don't know. The Romans had cherries in the first century yeah. AD, but I don't know how long it took before they were here. And again, you've yeah. got this. Is this an ancient story or does it become a berry later on? Yeah. I don't think you go far, get very far lobbing a blackberry out. <laughs> well, it depends. Some of those, you know, unripe or, you know, slightly dried out blackberries can be pretty knobbly. I've never tried. No. <laughs> Shall we set up some sort of experiment? Yeah. Experimental archaeology where we try the effect. Fish, or the efficacy yeah. of different sorts of berries. <laughs> I'd like to see that on time, team. That'd be really good, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> the other thing I wanted to check, I mean, Dublin mm. is a familiar name, but yeah. I already thought that meant um, dark pool. Yes, it does. Blackpool, basically, is Black our capital pool. city. Yeah. yeah, And that's literally Dove Lynn. And there is, again, a geographical spot, which I think... Um, I can never remember which is closer to the sea. There's a Dovelind and then there's a, the Ahaclea mm. are two different parts along the Liffey that are now both kind of part they've of Dublin. Got, they've got sort of assumed into each other. Exactly, they, yeah. yeah. But definitely Dovelind was this dark pool. I think it was a deep place that, that uh, ships could come and anchor. Oh, right. Um, so I think that what we have with this Dinhenica's poem is one where... It's almost like characters have been brought in to personify or sort of elaborate on what is quite a simple descriptive name. Place. There's several names in this story which actually are places, aren't there? Yeah. Um, there's Ochen, for example, which we met uh, earlier well, in the poem on the brew. That's where Elkvar was yes. sent to, isn't it? Yeah. So up between sort of Navan and Kells on, on the shores of the Blackwater, which then was the River Dove, funnily enough. Um, so, yeah, so there's Aachen is a place. Um, then there's also, when I tried to figure out Adda and what her name was about, it seems to mean a place or a situation, right. you know? And then, of course, there's Adda's grandparent, of whichever gender, who is Knucha. And the only sort of relationship I can find to that. It's got to be Nachva, it's got to be Nauth. Well, I suppose that's probably why I was pronouncing it slightly differently. Yes. Because I've got Nauth in the back of my head. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry, was I pronouncing it wrong? No, not at all, not at all. But yes, because the first thing you think of is Knuckva. Exactly, yeah. And that is very definitely a, a feminine place. And even if it's not directly Knuckva, as in Nauth, then Knuck is a hill, you know. Yeah. So this seems to be, you know, almost allegorical in that sense. of mm. places, giving them a story. Yeah. So it's like the Dinhyanicus is going the other way. Exactly, yeah. It starts with the place name and then builds a story around it. Yeah, you know, well, that's now, interesting. Yeah, now, I mean, there, what I think may well be the case is that you get the sort of, these half-remembered stories that are associated with a place, but that the names can change. And we've met this in other stories before, mm -hmm. you know, whereby sort of names of significance become attached to a particular story. You know, I mean, here we are sitting on the burial site of Fionn McCool, you know, because the Hill of Shebeg is associated with the Fianna, 
therefore it has to be Fionn. Yeah, yeah, you know? and because there was there is a traditional ancient burial here. Yeah. Well, who else could be buried here exactly. other than Fionn? Exactly, yeah. So I think it's something maybe along those lines that's happened mm. with this Dovlin. If you go back to Tales of She Begged, yes. we went into that in great detail. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Goodness, we are referencing a lot of past episodes. Well, we have a lot to reference. <laughs> well, I suppose also because Dinchianicus comes into everything. Exactly. Well, the second part of that pair is looking at the derivation of that other name that we use in modern Irish of Balliohoclea, or uh, off Cleath, as it would be in Old Irish, which means Ford of the Hurdles. You might have heard that before as well. But this is really interesting because we meet again this wondrous monster that we touched on briefly when we were touring the brew oh, and the yeah. boyne. This wonderful monster that yeah. licked up the uh, the boyne valley. Boyne valley. Yes. So if you want to go ahead and tell us, okay. One. Well, look, I'm going to read this one almost exactly as Gwyn gives it yes. with all its um, archaic, fake medievalism. Yes. Because it's actually quite nice. This it's one. fun. Yeah. Behold, off clear before, before you a while, O tower that ever guards the gale, What warrior, what dame has plundered it And given its name to the ford? The sin of Adam's wife brought upon us The senseless, rough-sporting beast, Long since had the seer foretold The beast that was on Lechben. The beast that was on Lechben had seven score feet, Four heads, it shank and its toe reached hither, And it licked up the boy until it became a valley. The beast from which the tale grew up, if thou art skilled in a thousand books, the strange beast it found rest. It was slain on the Brug Machinog. Who was it that planted the palisade in its great size, set it in the ford? What is this palisade, we wonder? It shall abide in the pool till doomsday. <laughs> Now, I really like that story. Yeah. A monster which licked up the boy until it became a valley. Yeah. It's a wonderful image. It's brilliant. And, uh, you know, it, I actually like the way Gwyn's translated mm. that. It, it's epic and yeah. big. And that one works. Yes, it does. Yeah. And there's lots of detail, isn't there? There is plenty. And it matches up with uh, that part in the uh, Dinhenica's poem on the Brew and the Boy in there. It is the same story. It's, oh, it's definitely the same monster. Yeah, exactly. But um, lots more detail. Yes. The, monster, the way the monster's described. Exactly. And yeah, I love all the bits with all its heads and legs and, you know, all its multifaceted uh, limbs. But there's also a stanza after that part that we just read, which talks about how after the beast was killed... And of course, we know it was killed in the brew, and it says it here. Um, but that the beast's rib cage or its chest was kind of tossed around on the sea yeah. until it was finally thrown up and is the actual ford of hurdles that is Balia So it's actually a feature that's made from yeah. the rib cage really of this water beast. Yeah, it's it's uh, so it's this very kind of you know physical parts of the landscape, you know, and. That's so Dublin like. is actually um, <laughs> made of the bones of a water beast yeah. that lived long, long ago. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's not really a hurdle bridge. It's a well. This is it. I mean, there was obviously bone bridge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we can uh, petition them to change the name of Dublin to Bone Bridge, shall we? Um, <laughs> You've got Banbridge, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> not the same thing at all. No, no. <laughs> but um, we have met water beasts before. Oh yeah. You know, um, there's the Very one. Very good ones. 
Oh yeah, I mean there's one that we met in uh, Brickrew, which uh, inhabited the lake below Carcunry. Oh, the one with the great neck. Exactly, yeah. the, that scooped up Cuchulain and you know, ah yeah, he was, that was a really good one. Uh, but we also met it right back in the Dinhenicus and Dream time, when we were looking at the Dinhenicus on the Barrow River, um, where there was this, again, this great broiling uh, sea beast or water beast, um, the Macaire and ended up putting an end to. Now in that one though, uh, it was called Mechi and I couldn't really make much sense of the name in linguistic terms. I suppose it's not too far off Maka. Matha. Sorry, no. what did I say? Smeki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not too far off Matha and I, I think you could legitimately say that these are very closely related. And that's not the only water beast we've no. found, isn't it? I mean, we may not have dragons, but no. we've got loads of good water beasts. Exactly, yeah. Uh, which maybe gives a little bit of hope for the um, antiquity of the Loch Ness monster, exactly. I doubt it. Well, it's, it's part of that same set, I would say. The, you know. A water beast is quite likely. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and funny enough, when we were talking about this, you had this image of all this sluggish beasts coming yeah. through the valley and carving the and valley carving out, carving the yeah. valley out, and you know, the, the, and drying it out. Mm. The, 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 you suddenly, you know, you can't help it, but you do get this image of the ancient glaciers coming through. Yeah, yeah. You know, and turning, creating a valley mm. as they go. Like, I, I'm not literally saying no. that there are a load of people standing there going, oh, look at all that ice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really think so. No, there weren't people in this part of the world at that I time. I know stories last a long time, yeah. but it's not quite like that. Yeah. But it does give you the idea that, that you know, that idea of the image. Mm. Oh, almost like people standing there and thinking the only way that that could have been created mm. was by some great monster exactly. pouring down the hill and yeah. it's almost like a way of pictorial explaining glaciation yes. yeah I not mean, that they knew that's what it was no but in the same way that you know the, the entire theory about glacial landscapes has to be inferred from what it leaves behind you know this is just a different inference so it was almost you know? like a personification of that which could have created that uh, uh the landscape yeah and the glacier is a great monster that sluggishly moves absolutely down. But don't I am not suggesting that they were standing there staring at a glacier. No, but it is a glacial landscape. The yeah. Holborn Valley is a glacial landscape. It's glacial deposits that have made it a very fertile part of the country. Uh, yeah, very fertile. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that makes me think that it's almost like a personification of, mm. the, of the landscape or the way the landscape is perceived to have yeah. been made is because there's no one hero opposing it. That's very true, yeah. You've got anyone who is anyone gets in on the act. Yes, as, as we saw in the in the part in the Bruna Boina, it was every famous king and chieftain came to put a stone there. Yeah, yeah. Including one or two that we left out because yes. the, the story was getting too long in the first yeah. Gentianicus. Yeah. In the, there's just one more thing I want to say about yeah. that poem. Yeah. It, it just, it's totally unrelated observation, <laughs> but it hit me when I, when I first read it. If you notice those lines, the sin of Adam's wife brought upon us the senseless, rough sporting beast long since had the seer foretold. Does that remind you of something a little bit Yeatsy? You mean... Yes, I do. <laughs> and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Yeah, a very well-known <laughs> poem. Well, it's, yeah, it's a wonderful one, Second Coming. Yeah, it's actually one of my favourite yes. poems because I just like it. Yeah. Because it's just... Uh, and which one... is quoted in Babylon 5. Oh, God, it's quoted all over the place. Yes, but yes definitely Babylon 5. <laughs> By Jakar. Yes. Although I'm not sure that Yeats would necessarily have 
personally read the Dinhanicus poems. You don't think so? I'm not convinced. No, no you're never convinced no, about no, yet, no, no. So, yeah. He was but, more into his folktale, really. Yeah, yeah. but, <laughs> but um, Lady Gregory would have known it. She might well. And she, she was well. behind quite a lot of stuff that oh, he yes. knew. <laughs> quite the lady. Right, well, for my next choice, um, I've got... I do keep wanting to play this. I know. That's what I did. Music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For the next choice, um, I've gone with a poem that's really quite different in character, um, which is the Dinhanicus poem on Carmen. A rather long poem. Oh, God, yes. Huge one. We're not is. doing it all. No, God, no, we couldn't. We couldn't. Um, not even if it was an entire episode. I don't think we could cover the whole thing. Um, but what it shows is the function of the Dinhanicus, where it records and commemorates important social structures and political events um in this case it's the fair at carmen it's a wonderful description yeah. of the ancient fair isn't it annoying yes um now weren't they just that so absolutely central mm. to social organization yes yeah i mean we we have touched on this before i think particularly when we were looking at macha which was series one episode two we did talk a bit about the fair there because macha is brought and raced against horses at an oinach um they were i mean they covered everything they covered law they covered taxes they covered um you know it was a time for getting married it was a time for um, you know, probably elections to various mm. offices. I think it's difficult to understand how important and mm. central they were because now when we think of a fair, we think yeah. of market, yeah. entertainment. Yeah. Um, you have to go back to medieval times when you have the king's court travelling yes. around. I'm going back to English history. Yeah, yeah, then. yeah. They were the time when uh, the courts were held. Yes. You know, um, people were tried. People, yeah. I'm going back to, again, medieval yeah, yeah. fairs, but it's much the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when any arguments were set, yes. when deals were made, yeah. it's like um, it's like the circuit court combined, yeah. combined with the uh, horse fair at Ballina Slow, yeah. combined with um, Glastonbury Marks Fair. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, it's loads of stuff. Exactly, yeah. And of course, terribly mm -hmm. important for quite a spread out rural society mm -hmm. which wouldn't have you know a permanent courthouse or uh, wouldn't necessarily have had a permanent tax office or social welfare office do you know what i mean it's a very different way of organizing people and so it was really important that you knew exactly when and where everyone was going to get together and sort it out and it does make sense of some of these great places these special places in the landscape yes. going right back to the bronze age and yeah. definitely there in the iron age yeah. which seem empty i mean yeah. places some of these great forts yes. which are when excavated seem to have nothing in them yes and not always many people live there for mm. such a huge space and yet yeah. they seem to have huge ramparts exactly. and, and not for protection just no. for sheer prominence exactly yes. they were yeah. the places where everybody met and where the king was recognized exactly the chieftains were terribly important yeah and i think their importance is hugely underestimated it is yeah yeah and um, now we have come across these before as i said there was the one at Evenmacher. we also came across a reference when we were looking at the story of clothru and of Medev that when Medev died that there was an oinach happening on the riverbank um so and they, they are very much about political centers as well you know places where political power was held and established so now it is a long poem so maybe we well, better look at <clears throat> we've taken a selection of yeah. verses and so i'm really referring to this as carmen the short form yes <laughs> and uh, i picked out one stanza which uh, relates to is really an introduction yeah. to the site yes carmen 
venue of a hospitable fair, with level greens and tracks commemorated by the hosts that came to contend in its pure horse races. A cemetery of kings is its noble gathering place, especially valued by its high-status hosts, here where the great assembly is camped in honour of the event's foundation. So that's just talking about the importance of the actual place itself. Exactly. But where was Carmen Fair? It doesn't seem very clear. No, and it is a bit contentious, really. Um, there's some thought that it might relate to the Garmin of Loch Garmin, which is the modern Irish term for Waterford. Um, now, that seems very far south for a lot of the sort of population groups and so on that are mentioned within this poem. Um, but it seems that it might be a bit further inland, maybe even up the Barrow um, or one of those other rivers, mm -hmm. um, sort of going inland up from Waterford, maybe towards the borders of Carlow. But it's not terribly clear, interestingly enough, considering how easily identifiable places like Evan Macha and Cruachan yeah, um, yeah. and uh, even Rodriga and all those places are. It's a little bit more difficult. You favour the Carlos. I do, yeah, but it's, it's that bit inland, I think, and it, it just seems to kind of bring all the different peoples, because it does list, you know, exactly where, you know, this tribe sat and then there are other representations this other representative mm. is further down the pecking order. That seems to be a kind of a central point. But it's it, it's quite possible, um, given that it's also called a very ancient fair, that it might have moved yeah, around, yeah. you know? Yeah, which would be unusual. A lot of them are very it would, particular but I mean, places. But it might have moved around like every few hundred years. Yeah, well, you know? yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, the next section then tells us about something about Carmen herself. Oh, yes. And look, I've had enough of poetry at the moment. You tell the story because it's quite interesting. Yeah, now this is, if you like, this is the Dinhenicus bit. Um, and now it's, even though it might sound like it, it's not Bizet's Carmen, um, but... A dil diligent marauding woman. Yes. <laughs> well, she is described as, funnily enough, coming from Athens. Um, she's described as being married to a man named Machdivids, which just means um, the son of destruction. Uh, we came across that Breschel Bodevitz. So she's a female pirate. Yeah, essentially she is a pirate and she goes pirating with her three piratical sons and that, that they are particularly plundering the east coast of Ireland seems to be um, mm -hmm. where they're focused. And when the Tuatha kind of, Tuatha Danann get wind of this, they don't really, they're not going to put up with it. And so they send out four kind of warriors to meet with Carmen and her three sons, one for each of them. And interestingly, it names Beichulla, who yeah. we met before as one of the Bantuathid of the Tuatha Day. Um, they send her to meet Carmen herself. And then there's three others, including Creedenvale. Oh, yes. yes the, satirist, the satirist. Yes, who are sent out to meet the three boys. So, so you've got names here which belong to a very early story. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's very firmly within Tua de Danon. Um, so they basically, as you might expect, the two of the day get the upper hand. And the agreement that they make is that the three sons are banished forever. They're not allowed to set foot on Ireland or come anywhere near anywhere ever again but they keep Carmen herself as a hostage you know in order to guarantee this agreement um, and they imprison her 
in this sort of narrow cell and um she basically wastes away you know sort of from grief and, and defeat and all the rest of it but when she dies the tooth day mourn her properly they all come to the place and they raise a proper keening proper lament for her um i think it says for the sake of her beauty or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. But essentially she's honored you know as an important figure um, and it is Bresh McAllison who actually mm. digs her grave. So this is set right in the earliest, you know, the old Waitora story. Absolutely, you know, This yeah. is the original, the, you know, the original uh, Tour de Dolan. Exactly, yes. And, you know, within, within whom Bresh is considered as, you know, a full and honourable member of, mm -hmm. of this people. At least most of the time. <laughs> well, he is very often yeah, is, within, yeah, within yeah, these yeah. poems, you know, it's quite a contrast from how he's seen in Waitora. I love the way that um, in the actual poem, yes. just one or two lines, mm. like how Carmen is described. Yes. Carmen, by means of every spell of fame, dried up the sap of swelling fruit. Mm. She caused strife with her forbidden arts, her sons, through battle and lawlessness. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, again, we have this sense of the, the prominent woman using some kind of sorcery, you know. Um, and then they change their mind and go, oh, we're sorry, she's dead. Well, yeah, but I, I think it's that sort of honouring the enemy thing. That you she's know. a worthy enemy. Exactly, yeah. Look, I'll pick out a few, just a couple of verses about the fair itself. Yeah. Um, on the 1st of August, without argument, every third year, they would gather together. They would hold seven races for a glorious prize, one for every day of the week. Mm. There they would undertake verbal battles, hotly debate the rights and taxes of the province, every legal enactment reordered every third year. Yeah, that's a, a very clear indication, for one thing, of, of why it's important. Um, but also it gives us that fact it was held every three years and it lasted a week. And in, again, later in the poem, we're not going to go into all those details, but it does give us the details later in the poem of what happened exactly on each day, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it's very satisfying in terms of its details, this poem, but there are a lot of them. I suppose we could possibly at least put a link, if not the yes, actual poem. I'm sure I have, I've put some of it up before at least, and I'll definitely do that for people's it's worth reading. enjoyment. Yeah, I think so. It's just quite long. It is. <laughs> and everybody wants to get on the act. Yeah. Not just for one fair, but all, all the fairs that ever were. Exactly. Have to have their, you know, their kings or their yeah. leaders or their prize winners acknowledged. Exactly. It just gets a bit yeah, yeah. overwhelming. <laughs> but what I like, really love, because I love alliterative lists. Uh-huh. Um, and the literative lists come next. Yes. Which really describe what is the quality and exactly. the, what happens. The, what the, the privileges of the fair. And the important aspects of yes. it. Yeah. Oh, and these lists sound wonderful in Ireland. Yes. Hey, can you give us a couple of lines? I will. Eith, mlicht, sheath, sava, sunna, lina, lona, lerthola. That's corn, milk, peace, happy ease, full nets oceans plenty yeah. that's all the good things exactly yes and particularly that eth and licht that corn and milk you often get that as standing for all food you know? and i like the lena lana the lena lana yeah that's full nets you know or fishing lines basically and you've got the other two sava yes um the sheath which we know is yeah, peace, peace and yeah. then sava sunna yeah happy and, and peaceful it's really yeah. lovely and though you can feel the the way it, all of those lines mm fit together in the same way with the internal rhyme, the oh, alliteration. God, yeah. It's terrific. Mm, mm. I, I, maybe. I keep hoping you're going to have time to, get, to record a little more. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, the next verse uh, gives us the things that they don't want to see oh, at yes. the fair. The prohibitions. 
suing, harsh levying of debts, satirising, quarrelling. This misconduct is not dared during the races, absconding with a deposit or distraint. Now, some of these are perfectly legal processes, particularly things like suing and uh, distraint, which is a means of getting justice when someone's broken a contract. So they are perfectly legal, but not appropriate to this fair, is mm. all it's saying. Not even quarrelling. No. Nope. <laughs> or you can't collect debt. Exactly, fair. yeah. And satirising is definitely yeah. out. Yeah. No men to go into an assembly of women. No women into assembly of men. As for elopement, it's not to be thought of. Neither a second husband or a second family. <laughs> now, again, some of these things are perfectly legal, but not here. <laughs> it doesn't really mean that men and women can't mix, does it? No, uh, there's one of the days which is specifically the day for the women's assembly. Um, so it's just saying that when it's specifically an assembly of women, no man dares to go into it. These are just the prohibitions. Yeah, they're not allowed inappropriate uh, interference. Exactly, yes. So, yeah. uh, But it is about sort of rightness and order, you know, that order has to be kept at this fair. Whoever transgresses the law of the kings, Benon prescribed firmly forever that he should not thrive in his tribe, but should die for his mortal sin. <laughs> A mortal sin. Yeah. <laughs> So it was taken seriously then? Oh yeah, <laughs> pretty damn seriously. Yeah, mortal sin's an interesting... It phrase. is. It's almost like taking a church term mm -mm. and applying it. So let's get on to, as it were, almost the central quality of the, oh, yes. of the fair. These are the Oinox great customs. Trumpets, harps, hollow-throated horns, pipers, tireless timpanists, poets and gentle musicians, the inexhaustible stories of Fionn McCool, destructions, cattle raids, wooings, riddles, and lists of home letters, satires, keen mysteries, the proverbial Rosca verses of law, the truthful teachings of Fethel, dark poems of the dead Canicus, teachings of Carbra and Cormac, the tale of the household of Tara, the knowledge of every county, the history of women, tales of armies, battles, hostels, magical prohibitions, invasions. That's quite a list. Oh, now, you know, as a storyteller, yeah. there is almost a complete list of story types that, yes. that every bard had to know. If you were a storyteller, exactly. you had to know every one of these What's it, 250 primary yeah. stories, 200, well, the other way around, yeah. I think it is. 150 but, primary and 250 secondary yeah. stories, yeah. But I'm just getting too excited <laughs> to get it the right way around. But also the types of stories. Yes. Yeah. You know, because, you know, with the stories being divided into these types so exactly. that you could remember and which ones were appropriate for different events. Yes. And here they all are listed. Exactly, yes. And again, it's nice that the Fenian stories have their own sort of entry into the list, if you like. So, Inexhaustible. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's why we've left it so long. <laughs> there is so much of it. <laughs> but it includes other kinds of learning as well that we have come across in things like the um, the Middle Irish tract on uh, the poet's training. Yeah, um, yeah. So you get things like the reference to the Ogham, you get uh, the law as it's preserved in Rusk passages, mm -hmm. um, and then you get the so-called wisdom text. So you get the Finthroth Fethel, which is the teachings of Fethel, and you get the Tegusca Cormac, which is the, the teachings of Cormac. You know, so it really is quite an excellent gathering together of all these areas of wisdom, you know, and of learning, and that this is central 
to what happens at the fair is that the, this is the time to hear them all, to have them all recited and listened to and appreciated. Yeah, and that that, that just shows how central this is, mm. because all of these types of learning yeah. are listed as being important. Exactly. So it's not just roundabouts and swings. No. <laughs> And then you've got more at the close of the fair. And this yes. it mentions it specifically the close of the exactly, fair. Yeah. That you would listen to death tales, slaughters, chanting of music, exact histories of good peoples, the royal succession bestowed by Bregmag, his battle and his harsh valour. Yeah. Now, I don't know what, who this Bregmag is. Well, again, Bregmag, it means the plain of Bray. Of Bray. Yeah. Um, like, you know, that's Bray and Mike. And so he would be the kind of mythologised originator of a royal dynasty um, and so this is saying that you know if you like the culmination of the fair has to do with the reciting of genealogies and of if you like military history um, and this is the legitimization for the current dynasty and reminding you who is actually playing the paying the piper exactly yeah <laughs> absolutely you know that that and it's almost in the poem it's almost given as this is how you know when it, we're on the last day is because th these are the things you'll hear you know but it's a re-establishment of who's in power and who's in charge yeah. and it, it's also as a storyteller again mm. it's a reminder that at different times of the fair mm. different sets of stories would be told exactly and whereas you're supposed to have the stories of births yes. at a birth or yeah. weddings at a, at a wedding yeah and death tales at funerals mm. and in rama at the start of journeys yes here it was appropriate to have all of them exactly yes and you'd have your death tales mm. at the end exactly and that there is this sense that there is a right order to them you know, and that the fair wouldn't be complete if it didn't include them all. That's the other thing. That's why it remi I was reminded for a moment of when we were back in 2000 mm. when we were doing Moitura. Yes. And although I don't think a lot of people realise, mm. one of the great things for us yes. was that the whole story was told yeah. during that festival. Yeah, beginning to end. Yeah, that that is something that just doesn't happen. Mm. But for us, yeah. it wasn't a complete festival exactly. unless the full story was told. Yes, yeah. Um, now, it just came back to me mm. that that was important to us as well, yes, that yeah. it should happen, even though the recording went wrong. I know, but then that's always the way, isn't it? And it rained a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which was actually why the recording went wrong. Yes, <laughs> but we had the most wonderful candlelit evening, you know. Yeah, so. just that we can't hear it again. Yeah. And of course, just to finish, mm. there was, of course, a penalty for neglecting the duties of oh, the fair. Naturally. And I love this stanza. <laughs> yeah. There comes for neglect of it Baldness, weakness, <laughs> early greyness, kings without keenness or jollity, without hospitality or truth. <laughs> so it's saying to the king, if yeah. you don't keep the custom of this fair, yeah. you probably pay for it as well, yeah. you're going to go grey, yes. and what's more, you're going to go bald. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's such a great threat. After, after all the warnings, if you don't keep the customs of the fair, yeah. then, you know, you could die for it. Yeah, yeah. Then it warns the king, oh, no, you won't die, but you will go bald. Yeah. <laughs> That's worse. Worse, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fate worse than death. Yeah. Originally must be going bald. bald. Yeah. <laughs> and grey to boot. Yes. Boot. The hair gray you bald. don't have is also grey. <laughs> but, it, you know, it is a very important Din Calicus poem, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah, because it, it has sort of all those elements in together you know it does have that bit about you know the person for whom the place is named Carmen but then why the place is important because it's this massive Oinach and what's important about the Oinach and it gives us this tremendous insight 
into the context for all of these Dinhenicus poems. Mm -hmm. You know, that the, there were these important social occasions at which people would have heard the local tale. And the gra gravity and the uh, dignity mm. and the sophistication. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of this society. Absolutely, yes. And particularly, you know, in terms of the social structure, it was hierarchical. You know, it, it's been called a caste system. I think that's a little bit too extreme. But that structure was incredibly important to them. Um, and that's reflected within the laws. And this is the practice by which that structure mm. was maintained. Mm. And I think it's the only Dinhalicus which talks about Dinhalicus. Yes, yeah, I think so. I like that. <laughs> so... Talk us through your final Dinhalicus choice. Yes, this is my final uh, disc in this not-so-desert island. Um, this is the Dinhalicus on Inver Alvina, um, which is somewhere, again, it's North County Dublin. Uh, it seems to be uh, Gorman's Town. Uh, mm -hmm. It's near, I think, Port Marnock, uh, that kind of area. Um, and it's partly for the story, I think, that I've really chosen this one. There's a lot of elements in this story I find really fascinating. So Alvina is the river, isn't it? Yes, that would seem to be. Uh, it's not specifically identified, but yeah, Inver Alvina yeah, would the mean the river. exactly the estuary yeah. of the yeah, river Alvina. Yeah. Well, shall I give you a couple of? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll let's... read a couple of uh, stanzas from the beginning. Yeah. And again, I've slightly modernised. Of course, thankfully, yes. <laughs> O oh, men of word, high in honour, among any headstrong company, I shall tell you, in my warm dwelling, the cunning story of Alvina. There was once a famous prince who rode north of undivided Ireland. He was the pilot of a splendid crew, Ruart, son of Valiant Rigdon. Yes, lovely. Now, names. Yes, the names. Ruad, uh, which we've met before on many occasions, it is that red, but it's particularly the, the russet, russet red yeah. colour. It's it's the one that's specified as the colour of dried blood mm -hmm. um, and very often applied to someone who has red hair. It's that kind of red. Um, and Rikdan is uh, literally means brown king. And that done is, I think, this is one of my colour words, that it refers to the a sort of brown of good earth. You know, so that it's a good, sort of a yeah, rich brown. Exactly, yeah, yeah, not like your stony grey soil of Monaghan. So the russet sun of mm. an earth brown king. Yes, it's rather nice that. Oh yes. The other comment that I'd make mm. on that first couple of couple of stanzas is undivided Ireland. Yeah. Because Ireland is, I mean, it's not a new thing. The idea of divided Ireland mm. is that right from the earliest stage, it's cut into two parts. Yes. The half of Carl and the half of Mog. Yes. Uh, yeah. Or later other divisions exactly and and there's always population divisions that are yeah. are made it's very rare in fact uh, that you get a sense of ireland as you know a whole island all mm. under one culture and that's probably the reason why there isn't a historical high king of tara you know it wasn't seen as a, one nation no it's never undivided no. ireland that, no. that just struck me because mm. it's quite an unusual phrase it is yeah well let's have a look at his voyage yes he undertook a careful, well-planned voyage, crossing the moor slumbering sea to visit with his friend, the Norseman. Oh, a fine, brave journey it was to Norway. He travelled with three splendid boats. They were impressive vessels, until they were unnervingly stopped short on the shoulders of the open sea. They found themselves unable to move in any direction, held in a strong grip. Into the waves, without hesitation, dived intrepid Ruard. 
When he went to cut the ship loose from the treacherous salt depths, he found in a secret spot nine female forms, fair and firm. They told him in clear voices it was they who had stopped the ship. Mm. <laughs> now, what's going on here? Now, I suppose the ship could be frozen in ice or snagged in seaweed. Yeah. Or, I favour that. Yes, yeah. Certainly it seems to be becalmed in some way or another, yeah. Well, uh, but since he goes to cut them loose, you well, would imagine. Well, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. I was thinking, I mean, often the ships sail very close to land. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and if he was caught in weeds yeah. and so forth, mm. it feels like that. Though yeah. the ice is rather a nice one with him travelling north. Yes, yeah. But otherwise, they'd be very chilly, fair and female thoughts, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, they're already living underwater. <laughs> yeah, they've got you've got these nine sirens, these yes. women beneath the waves. Yeah, you remember when Brian met a group of women like that? Oh, he did. Yes, when he went to try and get the cooking spit, and of course, that was when he used his wonderful diving helmet. Now, do you think Ruitt's got one of them? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he had a borrow of it. Well, let's go on and find out what happened when mm. he went to the bottom of the sea with the nine women. Oh, yes. He slept nine nights with the women without raising a single objection. <gasps> under the sea, free from waves, on nine beds of bronze. Though one of the women was pregnant by him, he left them to go on his way. They let him go on condition that he should come back again. And uh, I think that's enough of the poetry for me. Go on, you, you tell the story. <laughs> well... When Ruud finally gets to Norway... Ruud of the Spears, he's called now. Yeah, which is a nice title. Uh, he spends seven years there with his mates, the Vikings, we would assume. And when he makes his merry way back to Ireland, oh, what a surprise, he forgets to stop in at these nine women, one of whom, of course, was made pregnant by him. And uh, they pursue him back to Ireland in boats of bronze, which yeah. is quite wonderful. Uh, of course, then something terrible happens. Because when the women land, the woman who has the child throws the child at him yeah. like a spear. Yeah. And the child is killed. Yeah. And of course, everyone is horrified. Yes. And this is where all the hosts cry out, Bahol, Bahol in Vinna. Which means great, great was the harm. Yes. And this is where we get from that all in Vinna. It's saying Alvina. And so that is how the river got its name. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, in essence, that's the story. Yes. But I do, I think you're right. This is an absolutely fascinating story. Mm. There is so much to talk about here. Oh, yes. I'm very excited about this story. <laughs> now, I think what really interests me when I, every time we come to this story, yeah. is that the women pursue him in bronze boats. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is a very specific and unusual thing. Oh, yeah. And they're described as these, these perfect, beautiful brooks, aren't yeah, they, as well? Yeah. Um, they're also beds of bronze. Yes. This is something obviously very particular that you can recognise these women because of this quality. And they're bringing bronze. Mm. And then this strange story of the, the, the woman throws her child. Yeah. And this child is the russet child bought, you know, from the dark earth. Mm. Um, mm. I just keep getting this feeling that the child is a child of bronze. This is a mm. spear. Mm. And if he's called Ruid of the Spears yes. as well, his father. Yes, exactly. Ruid, so, father of spears. Mm. And so the child is a child insofar as maybe it's something that the woman has made. Or that woman and Ruid have made. Exactly, yes. That they have created something together. What we're getting is new technology. Yes. And yeah. we've met this story before. Oh, yeah. I... I you know, we've got the, the wonder everybody is so surprised and maybe horrified mm. at the damage this new 
metal weapon yeah. can do. Yeah. And the the strange thing is, we've met this before, and we've met it at Waitara. Of course, yes. And here we've got, do you remember, oh, one of our favourite characters? Yes. Ruadon. Yeah, exactly. Whose name is so close to the Ruad of this. And that, that epithet of, of the spears, Ruadon was trying to go, as we think, to spy on the new technologies and techniques of the Dadanan, and gets killed for his trouble. Um, and of course there, Ruadon is the son of Bresh MacAllathan, who is the king who brings agricultural knowledge, knowledge about ploughing yeah, to the two yeah. of the Dadanan. And that's where I think there's a, maybe a connection, it's a little tenuous, but that in this poem on Inver Alvina, Ruad's father is called Rig Dun, the brown king. It's very earth based. Yeah, the, 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 the russet son of the, the dark earth brown, earth king. brown king. Yeah. Almost as though the ore from the ground. Mm, mm. I don't know, this is tenuous, but it's there. And yeah. so many of these stories do have an allegorical or metaphorical yes. quality about them. Exactly. We've this over and over before. Mm -hmm. So in which case, in the same way as you've got Ruathorn mm. and the red in that, the red of the spear yes. and the woman and the yeah. red. Crone. Crone. A special finish. Mm. Mm. Um, whether we're getting iron here or mm. whether we, whether these are such old stories and yeah. we're talking about bronze. Yeah, yeah. These stories do, you know, they, they are remembered in little bits mm. of the remembered from mm. incredibly ancient times. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, look at what we find with Shannon. I know. <laughs> and stories do love, just little elements, yes. little qualities, not the whole story. Mm. Mm. So it's almost as though here we have a metaphorical story of the finding of new technology, yeah. which is both uh, wonderful but also terrifying. Exactly, yes, yeah, yeah. That's very terrible and strange and unexpected. Right. Well, we did say that Inveralvana was going to be the last Inhenicus poem. We and did. <laughs> that is true, but I do have my little desert island luxury. There's another little piece of, of poetry for which I'm indebted to Professor John Carey of Cork. Um, he had a great article about magical texts, which I've referred to before, especially when we were talking about um, how to get help from a craftsman mm -hmm. um, and uh, looking at this, these kind of charms or incantations that call on Gautnu and the Enkeft and so on. This is a slightly different piece. It's sort of a similar kind of text. It's called Noel Ferfio or Ferfio's Cry and it is we have it from a Middle Irish uh, treatise on mm. literary forms, you know, very much like the ones that give us, you know, the curriculum for the um, for the poets. Um, and this is cited as an example of a cadenance, which is a poem with a hundred stressed syllables. It comes in sort of three sections, and you'll see what the connections are as we go through, I think. And was just... it originally Middle Irish? Well, the poem itself is definitely older than the text in right, which it's right. cited. And Kerry proposes that um, there is a historical figure called Ferfio whose death in the annals is given within the 8th century. So, and linguistically, it certainly could go back that far. Um, and even though the full text includes um, a, a sort of essentially a Christian prayer at the end, um, Liam Branagh uh, has pointed out that if you leave that off, you get your hundred stressed syllables in the bit that we're going to look at. Okay, um, it's a beautiful poem, yeah. that's all I know. And mm. it's a poem for long life. Yes. And it goes, May fair fields cry protect me on the road as I make my circuit of the plain of life. 
I call upon the seven daughters of the sea who shape the threads of long life. Three deaths be taken from me, three lives given to me, seven waves of plenty poured for me. May ghosts not injure me on my journey, in my radiant breastplate without stain. May my name not be pledged in vain, and may death not come to me until I am old. Well, that's the first section. Yeah, it's a beautiful translation. Oh, it's gorgeous. This is John Kerry's uh, work, definitely. Um, the, this is the reason that I picked this to go along with Amber Alvina, because we have these daughters of the sea. Seven daughters of the yeah. sea. The threads of long life are mm. interesting, aren't they? Because although um, it's a very early poem, mm. we know that classical influence and Norse influence oh, yes. come in very early as well. Oh, absolutely, yes. And it reminds you of the Norns, or yes. also the Fates. Yes, exactly, who are spinning or weaving um, people's lives and, uh, you know, who know everything that's going to happen because they're weaving it into their cloth. Now, I know of no Irish Norns or, or Fates. No, no, it's not one that I've really come across either. But there is something that's interesting because mm. it says, take three deaths away from me. Yes. And we do have this motive of the triple death. Yes, we certainly do. And particularly for... for uh, Mostly for kings. Exactly, and great champions. And we have triple births as well. We have Cuchulain with his triple birth. Absolutely. You know? So it's got very old motives. Exactly, it, hasn't it? yes. yeah. And these seven daughters of the sea. I know. Now, in Inveralvina, they were nine. But numbers are not kind of specifically important within the Irish stuff. I don't think so anyway. You know, that a number can be given. But I don't think there's a material difference between saying seven and saying nine. Yeah, I th they're important. They're significant, but not mm. important, if you know what I mean. Yes, they, yeah. they, they can change a lot. Yes, yeah. I'll, let, I'll go through the second mm. section. I call upon my silver champion who has not died and will not die. May time be granted to me of the quality of bronze. May my form be exalted. May my double be slain. May my law be ennobled. May my strength be increased. May my, my tomb not be redded. May I not die on my journey. May my return be ensured to me. May the two-headed serpent not attack me, nor the hard grey worm, nor the senseless beetle. May no thief attack me, nor a company of women, nor a company of warriors. May I have increase of time from the king of all. Mm. Very nice. Oh, there's loads of lovely stuff in there. Silver champion, eh? Yes, exactly. Now, in, in Kerry's paper, he says he hasn't come across another reference to this silver champion, Aragonia. Really but, reminds me of Nuada, though. I know. It's it's so redolent of Nuada, who, as we said way back when we were talking about this in mm. Waitura, seems to be this merchant king, you know, this, this sea-bound king. And here... It's oh, that fits, doesn't it? Yes. So here it's someone who's being called on. I think this section really feels like protection on an actual journey. You know, the the first section definitely talks about journeying the plane of life. You know, it's about having long life. This section feels to me more like actually setting out on a journey. It's also to do with work yes. and gain and earning your living. Yeah. It's that part of exactly. the aspect of life. It also fits the, the merchant king. Mm. Um to do with uh, trade and yes, so forth. Yeah, and profit. And fishing and, mm. and so forth. Yeah. You know, as I'm thinking back to Nuada. But, exactly. But gaining food, mm. gaining wealth, yeah. gaining the substance to live. Yes. I yeah. find it very hard not to see it as Nuada, exactly, I have to yeah. say. And this is where we get that lovely phrase, the quality of bronze. Bronze again. Exactly, yes. So this is obviously something that is very special and significant. I think it marks out something as having extra 
value, extra worth, you know, and something a bit mysterious about it. After all, it's an alloy of two yeah. uh, metals, you know. Uh, so it's in some ways even more than gold. It is important and valuable. And I like the um, two-headed serpent, yes. the hard grey worm, the senseless beetle. I know, I know. It's great. I, I kept wondering which one is the senseless one. Is it Ringo or is it George Harrison? <laughs> I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was thinking of we have this once or twice beetles yeah, that come yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, yeah. We've had these dukes and, and all the rest of it. And they can be quite tricky. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. But then you also get your pest. You know, we've got our hard grey worm and got this two-headed serpent, which in some of the other um, incantations, charms that carry sites, um, cancers or tumours are seen as being caused by a headless serpent. Interesting. Which is really interesting. There could be the hard grey worm. Yes, yeah. So again, it seems to be sort of warding off accident and illness, you know. Um, and loss. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, loss of loss of earnings mm, as well, mm. I think, is in there. Yeah. Let's have a look at the last one. Yes. I call on Shannock of the Seven Lives, whom fairy women suckled on the breasts of good fortune. May my seven candles not be quenched. I am an invincible fortress. I am an unshakable cliff. I am a precious stone. I am the symbol of seven riches. May I be the man of hundreds of possessions, hundreds of years, each hundred after another. That's brilliant. It is. It's great. It's a real sort of affirmative uh, part, well, it, isn't it? It goes into the affirmation. It does. Yes. In the same way as um, you the know, Song, the Song of Avagon. Yes. But it also reminds me of some of the ancient Egyptian yes. prayers and charms. Yes. Yes. Which you know, I say that this is so. So it's so. Yes. And the affirmations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not just the island that has the Ishmishes. No. No. Exactly. Uh, I love that. Invincible fortune. Yeah. It's saying that you can't touch me. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, of course, then we've got Shannock. Yes. Now, once again, Carey said he couldn't identify this Shannock of the Seven Lives. But... It's very familiar. Yeah. We were talking about, back when we were doing Cloth Room. Yes. And we have the island of the Seven Shannocks. Yes. So this is Torshini, where I first yes. uh, came now, the, across These are this. saints, obviously, because uh, it's talking about a monastic the seven site. St. Shannocks. Yes, but there are seven, and they all have the same name. And that Inish Cloth Room is associated with... Having a hospice, a way to die well, also is on that island. Um, so even though this is a prayer for life, you know, they, this is someone with seven lives. Yes, it's it's, it's wanting the continuity yes. as well. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, we've got seven and nine. If cats have nine lives, yes, <laughs> this one's only offering seven, but yeah. it's not bad. It's not a bad deal, no. And I like that. May my seven candles not be quenched. You know, it does almost suggest this quality of having seven lives. Yes, I know you were saying something to me about the ending, about the hundreds. Yes, again. all these hundreds, because yes, this is a cadenad, and it's cited as an example of a cadenad, which. Has has these hundred stressed syllables um so it's it's not kind of the same as some of the Dinyanicus poems which are in you know bardic meter which have rules about rhyme and you know set syllables and so on but in the poem as a whole there's a hundred sets uh, stressed syllables and i love that it ends with this looking for things it, in hundreds it? you know hundreds it, of possessions exactly. hundreds of years each yes. hundred after, after another. another yes and of course if you think back to bochet um, who is this great hospitler who's supposed to have, you know, fantastic wealth. Uh, it's because he can count his cattle in hundreds. That's what qualifies you to be a brugge. 
So this business of being able to count your possessions in hundreds. Or count your years in hundreds. Yes, yeah. It's asking for the same quality of yes, life. Exactly, yeah. Uh, uh, to be at the top of the tree likewise. Mm, mm, exactly. As a, as as a blogger there's to, to farm the tree yeah. farmer yeah yeah it wants to be at the top of the tree in terms of life yeah and so yeah. forth it's very nice isn't that's it? gorgeous so it's a lovely luxury to take oh, with you to yes. your non-island definitely uh, it's something oddly enough you still find today though don't you yeah you know if you look in the local paper oh yeah you'll find prayers and cures yeah. still published oh yeah on a weekly basis i know in local papers in ireland and pe people wouldn't necessarily believe you but they're published as you know never yeah. been known to fail exactly and you do this you know and then you say three Hail Marys and uh, three days later you do this thing never been known to fail absolutely you know fail safe cure for whatever a headache you know and you still see these published oh yeah it's, yes I couldn't believe it and I know 20 years ago when I well 24 years ago yeah I was going what yeah and I think people Where's just take them for granted yes yeah yeah but it's still very much yeah it's still very much alive within the As consciousness are some of the charms to be honest yes yeah Absolutely. Um, the other thing, mind you, it's not the only place you'll find, you'll find it. I mean, I go to Australia every year, yeah. and, and I've often travelled on, uh, shall we say, Islamic airlines yes. of one sort or another. And when you get on a, a plane, of course, the prayer is spoken in uh, whatever language it is, mm -hmm. and the, the the translation of the prayer comes mm -hmm. up on the screen. As you and as you what, reading this prayer, instead of letting the beautiful syllables yeah, wash, over your, yeah. wash over your head, you yeah. start reading the words. Yeah. And one of the lines is, "May this plane not." fall out of the sky <laughs> and if i can remember rightly when i get home my mere possessions still be you know complete yes. and undamaged and may everybody's you know it's the yeah. same sort of thing yeah it's just i could do without may this plane not fall, fall out, out of the, the sky. sky yes and may my luggage end up in the same airport as i do basically <laughs> but it goes on yeah. exactly the same to yeah. say may my possessions be safe while i'm away and yes. may no one rob me and yeah things. it's very very similar absolutely yeah yeah uh, it's just a thought anyway mm. Just one more thing I was thinking about is the magical islands. Oh, yes. We keep coming across these bottom of the sea yes. islands. Yeah. And it just struck me that you've got, over this uh, series, we've talked about the other world yeah. being either under the ground. Yeah. And then later on, when that kind of gets a bit, well, they're not really under it's the ground, are they? Yeah. Uh, then they're shifted to offshore islands. Yes, over the sea. Yeah. So maybe we've sometimes we get this sort of converging of the two ideas. Mm. Under the ground, under the sea at the same time. Yes, yes, those islands at the bottom of the sea. And they tend to be populated by women. They, they do, don't yeah, they? Yeah, And uh, although we must say those women are not mermaids. No, they're not. No, <laughs> they are just, they just live at the bottom of the sea. And women, ordinary women, yes. living at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. We don't ask how they breathe or no, anything else. No, it's no. like an island in a bubble at the bottom exactly. of the sea. Exactly, yes. However, it's interesting looking at Dinyanikas as a whole, how many of these place names are attributed to women's names? You know, there's so often women at the source of Dinyanika stories. Well, let's get back to the Dinyanikas for a moment. Yes. I mean, this series was called Dinyanikas and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Yeah. And we haven't actually mentioned mythic cartography. We constantly talk about Dinyanikas. Yes. And I suppose mythic cartography we use that phrase a because i think i really like it yeah um because it it, it does illustrate one of the central aspects of dintianicus yes it? and of stories as a whole using myth uh to map the landscape yeah and its stories yes and to map and indicate the place of 
people within that landscape and their relationship to that landscape. And the relationship of the stories and its people. Exactly, yes. Yeah, it, it is a mapping of all these things in a way mm. I think that um, I, I don't know in many other places no. this, this really happens. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, that aspect is clearly illustrated in the in the Inveravala story. Exactly, yes, yeah. We've got that connection between um, a place and then this ancient event, you know, which seems to be part metaphor, part allegory, you know. Part but, of vague memory of yeah. a very important coming of something new. Exactly, maybe. yeah, yeah. So it's it's got all of that kind of melded in together and given in the story that names a particular place in and the landscape. Back to where we started mm. with Dindianicus and Dreaming. Yes. It's exactly what happens with the Australian. very oldest Australian indigenous stories. Exactly. Which gives me this feeling that these, our stories, also incredibly ancient. Exactly. So a lot of these Dindianicus as well, they're linking in to the big stories, the big sagas, and sort of making them real on a very local level. And I suppose also keeping the strong associations of this these two worlds. Yes. Uh, and keeping them current. Yeah. And I suppose also showing that the stories were generally very alive and well. Oh, yeah. The mythic elements of these stories. Absolutely. And well known, as we saw particularly in that one on the brook, you know, that they would have been very well known and important. So before we finish this episode, and I really, we really ought to think about finishing it. <laughs> we, but I still think we should run briefly through the main stories we've covered in the series, yes. with particular reference to mythic cartography. Yeah, absolutely. So should we start with Clothru? Yes, uh, the story of Clothru, which is you know Maeve and her sisters. Well, for one thing, we get a, another sight of an Oinach, like the one at mm. Carmen. But in terms of the real mythic cartography, you have Ethlu or Ethnu, who turns into a river, the River mm. Inni, which she's drowned in. And then you get Clothru herself, who's identified with this island and the well on the island, on Inish Clothrin. And the third sister, Maeve, who doesn't really have the same uh, presence in the landscape. But that's not surprising. She's she betrays it. Yeah, she's a usurper. So she doesn't have that identity with the landscape that her sister And that's do. what the story tells us. Exactly. That she yeah. fails to have that permanent link. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the story of Brickrew. Mm. Um, now that one travels around the country as a whole. Yes. It, it's all over the place. Mm. North, south, right across the yeah. country. But it also links stories and places together. Yes. It's not quite as localised as... Uh, some of the other Dindianica stories and poems. It's not, but we do get one specific little local gem, which is that Dindianicus of Drumsna, which is one of the charioteers falling off and drowning on his way back from, I can't remember whether it was coming back from Cruachan or from Kerry, but you can no, go you and... just probably get stuck on the M4. <laughs> well, next we've got The Adventures of Nera. Yes. Now, that one interests me because you've got this almost double vision. You've mm. got the underground and overground split of the territory of Kurokun. Yes. You've got the Kurokun above and the Kurokun below. Mm. Um, the two worlds. Mm. It's almost like a transparency overlay. Yeah. You know, with double time, mm. double you know, double vision the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Now that, I suppose, is a local story, but it links into a huge story of oh, the yes. Time Yes, which is absolutely epic, of course, but it also includes the entire provinces. Of Ulster, Ulster. And, and Connacht, yeah, which again is sort of more national, if you like, than a lot of these stories. Yeah. But um, 
the end of the time of Cunha, of course, <laughs> when the two bulls are finally having at each other, they and their entrails give us heaps of Dungenicus. Right the way across the country, you'll find, you know, the, the intestine of this bull and the, the duodenum of that bull. <laughs> You know, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a, they go around mocking their territory. Exactly, yes. All yes. over the country. Yeah. Which again suggests there's something much more interesting going on about that. I mean, these bulls yes. start off oh, yeah. uh, as with the two swineherds, which yeah. is a story we've never told. Yeah. Those bulls are far more ancient than oh, squabbles yes. between Connacht and Ulster. Exactly, exactly. Maybe one day we'll get there. Oh, there's so many stories. <laughs> so little time, so many stories. <laughs> Then, of course, we had the wonderful story of Aideen and Mither, um, which looks both, it's got both the, the brew and it's got the more unusual kind of major centre of Bree Leth. But it also includes that awful part at the end where all of the she mounds of Ireland are dug up, you yeah. know, and destroyed. There's this real kind of imposition of one world on the other in yeah, that that's one. That's very, 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 very important part of that story. Yes. Um, you, you know, there's some evidence when we go back to Brie mm. that they've got a very interesting site where this could have been a special, special tree filled space. Yes, even though there's not much visible, it's not very visible geography. Uh, mm. There, there isn't a lot in the way of you know massive megalithic monuments, but it was clearly very important. But of course, the other element in that story then is that it's a background to an ultimate sort of other world genealogy for a political dynasty of historical kings. This is the, the dynasty of Cunar Amor. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a kind of euhemerization. Mm. And what I find interesting about Irish stories yeah. is you have this euhemerization, this connecting yourself to either biblical figures mm. or mythological other world figures. Yes. So you could say, I'm descended from Nor or I'm descended from Lou. Yeah. And it's the same difference. Exactly. Really. And usually it's both as well. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. You yeah, know, you, yeah. you, 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 you it, that's what I love, the fact mm. that Yes, uh, no. Well, that's good yeah. because that's the Christian one. Or yeah. Lou. Well, that's equally good. Exactly. I love, I love them both. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it does kind of provide, if you like, our equivalent of the divine right of kings. You know, if you are descended from Aideen, then you know you have the the right to territory. You know that you've inherited from her line, and probably the other territory as well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as much as you can get. Right. Well, we really must stop ourselves now and stop ourselves at this series. I mean, we could just keep going indefinitely because any story would fit. Any it? story can have Dinhenicus elements, as we've said before. In fact, we nearly went on uh, to do the Togol Brithen Dalderiga. It was very close. Uh, yeah, which is the destruction of Dalderiga's hostel, but. It's we another thought, major one, isn't it? It is. So we thought we'd better save that one till later, maybe. <laughs> well, as we've said and said and said, Dinyanicus and mythic cartography is integral to just about all Irish stories. Yeah. But for now, mm -hmm. we're going to start messing about in boats. <laughs> we've decided to follow a few offshore Imrov adventures. Yes. Looking forward to it. Oh, I hope there's sunnier climbs as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists 
Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>